Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I've always been one of those people who, when I have a favorite song, I love the song because of how it sounds, not because of what it says. If you know what I mean. I had this awkward period of relearning when Lori and I were first married, because it turns out most of my favorite songs, I was mistaken about the lyrics. And when I would sing them out loud, Lori, she wouldn't call me on it. She would just say, could you sing that again? And I would know something's not right. Why, why does she want to get it on the record? What's going on? And, and as a result, I learned in, in our marriage never to sing aloud. Um, it's one of, one of the many lessons that I learned over time. Uh, it's embarrassing not only that I didn't know what the lyrics were, but, but maybe more embarrassing that I supplied my own to, to fill the gap. In some cases, I still think mine were better than the original lyrics. But all that just to say that the thing I loved about the music wasn't what it was saying. It wasn't the message. It was uh, how it sounded, like how the, the sounds made me feel if that makes sense. And so the lyrics came later, in some cases, much later. If you can relate to that, you know that that feeling of surprise that you get sometimes when you're singing a song that you know, a song that's like one of the the familiar songs of the faith, and you start paying attention to the lyrics for the first time. And you're like, wait a second, that's what that says? That's what that says? And it can be a little surprising. Things you've never reflected on before, depths that you've never actually paid much attention to, because what you loved about the song was was the sound, not the words. Well, for me, all of my favorite hymns probably became favorites for that reason, not because of what they said, ironically, but because of how they sounded. And And I'm the first person to admit that if you go through like a traditional hymnal and you start looking at some of the classic hymns, that a lot of them are very unmusical. Right? There are a lot of songs that, that we sing in church that you're like, wow, you would never sing this unless you felt like you had to as an obligation to God, right? Because a, a, a lot of them maybe are lacking in artistry. But, but there are treasures, there are gems to be discovered. Occasionally, the music may not be great, but the lyrics are amazing. One of my favorites, it's always been a favorite of mine, is Be Thou My Vision. And it's one of those songs that, that it, it's kind of, it, it has both of the qualities you want, like the lyrics are great, and the, the sound is great as well. There's a reason why this song has endured. And there's just a line from that, that song, a stanza that I want you to reflect on and think about. It's these words, thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. If you were worried that I was going to sing the words, no, I won't, but I will read them again. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. The idea of the presence of God, the knowledge of God as our light, as our illumination in life, is what I want to think about this morning. 
But to do that, I want to look at Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. When years ago, I started teaching uh, actually college-age students, I taught a Bible study, and, and I decided we should work our way line by line through the epistles of Paul, and we should do it chronologically. In the Bible, the epistles are not arranged chronologically. They're not arranged in the order in which they were written. Paul's epistles are, are arranged, I believe, in the order of length. So the longest ones come first, and then they get shorter as you go. So you get a sense of accomplishment as you work towards the end. But that's not the way they were composed originally. And First Thessalonians is arguably the earliest of these letters. And you'll see ideas here that are developed at greater length in later epistles that Paul writes. And that's true in our text, 1 Thessalonians 5. We're just going to look at three verses, 9, 10, and 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you were doing. So again, awake or asleep, waking or sleeping, as Be Thou My Vision puts it. If you think about what those words mean, it's interesting. Thou my best thought by day or by night, night and day, the highest thought, the highest focus of my meditation is Christ. Whether I'm awake or asleep, Whatever light I have, whatever understanding I possess, it comes from Christ's presence. You get the idea, Christ above all, Christ as my focus. Waking or sleeping is a metaphor. It's a metaphor here uh, to describe the difference between, you might say, knowing and unknowing or not knowing, knowledge and ignorance, whether I'm awake to reality or sleeping, unaware in every, every area of life, whether I possess understanding or not, I focus on Christ above all. Whether I'm in ignorance, whether I have knowledge, my spiritual knowledge, the knowledge that guides me in all things comes from God's presence, waking or sleeping. But Paul uses waking or sleeping as a metaphor to mean something else as well. And in our text, 1 Thessalonians 5, actually, he uses it both ways. Sometimes waking or sleeping is Paul's way of distinguishing between life and death. Between life and death. You know, in Paul's epistles, he speaks metaphorically of those who have died as having fallen asleep. There's a context for these verses in 1 Thessalonians 5 that's important. and actually goes back to chapter four, Uh, towards the end of this epistle, Paul is really concerned about what theologians call eschatology. So end times, last things, the return of Jesus, that sort of thing. And you have to remember, he's writing very early in the life of the church when the people that, that he's writing to don't understand how all this stuff works. They know that Jesus is going to return. They have no idea when that's going to happen, but a lot of them believe it's going to happen imminently. It's going to happen in their lifetimes. They're expecting it to happen any day now. They're waiting eagerly 
for Christ's return. It's kind of the purpose of the church. They gather together. They expect like at any moment Jesus could return. And then tragedy strikes and someone dies. A fellow believer who has been waiting eagerly for Christ's return passes away or as Paul says, falls asleep. And the question that this congregation in Thessalonica has, well, what happened? Like they didn't make it. They didn't endure until the end. They didn't last until Christ's return. What becomes of those who have fallen asleep when Christ returns? And Paul reassures them in a way that to us seems obvious, but it's because theirs is a concern that, that we frankly don't share because we have more knowledge than they had at that time. But Paul addresses them. He says in, in chapter four, verse 14, no, uh, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Like this is a fear, but it's not a fear that you ought to entertain because God, when he returns, when Christ comes back, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. So that's the, the atmosphere that he's writing about. As he writes about the, the end times, he's not writing about, as we might think, a sort of post-apocalyptic future. He's writing to them about events that, that they think could be imminent, that could be very much upon them. As he begins chapter five, he keeps this idea of what it will be like in mind. And he gives them reassurance. Like, you know, you know that there's no need to speculate about when Christ will return. There's no need for you to, to wonder when this is going to happen because you of all people know he will return in Paul's phrase, like a thief in the night. When you least expect him, you can't predict it. You won't be able to figure it out. You know this as believers, and it shouldn't cause you anxiety that you don't know when he will return because you are not living in ignorance, but rather with knowledge. Like you know that he will return and that changes the way that you live. So while you don't want to speculate, because there's no way that you can know the exact moment of his return, you won't be taken by surprise. Because you have this knowledge, you know that he is coming again and you live accordingly. So Paul contrasts the idea of light and darkness, the idea of daytime and night, the idea of being awake and being asleep. He says, you're not sleeping. You're not living in the darkness. You're living in the light. You are awake. Again, dealing with the idea of knowledge or the absence of knowledge. Those who are in the light are awake to the reality of Christ's return. Right here, in the early part of chapter 5, when he talks about waking and sleeping, he's not talking about life and death. He's talking about knowledge and awareness, ignorance and blindness. So that in verse 8, he says, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So he's talking here about the full armor of God. In Ephesians 6, later on in his ministry, he will write at much greater length about this idea of armor provided to us by God. But here he alludes to it as well. It, it must have been like a standard way that Paul talked to people about how to equip themselves to endure 
in the life of faith, to put on this armor, to, to put on the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of the hope of salvation, that sort of thing. That's the immediate context that then gets us to the text that we're looking at. And in our text, I'm going to suggest what Paul does for us is he kind of sums up the, the complex plan of salvation that we've been looking at. And he does it in a really simple way. Right? In three verses, he talks about God's purpose in predestination and hence at the assurance that follows from that. He talks about the ultimate point of Christ's work of atonement and by implication, Christ's incarnation. And then also, he addresses what we should do now in light of this knowledge. So listen to the passage again. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So, all the, the worry and the anxiety that these people feel about what is to come and what the future is, Christ's return, judgment, wrath to be poured out, all of that, Paul kind of brackets and says, you know what? You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about that because God's people are destined for salvation in Christ, not for wrath and judgment for their sin. So a lot of the things that would produce anxiety, even in us, a lot of the things that we might worry about or or devote endless uh, energy to speculating about out of a sense of fear, Paul is saying, you don't need to worry about that, but you've been destined for something else. We've already seen in Romans 8, the way Paul uses the the doctrine of, of God's foreknowledge and election and predestination to, to ground a chain, like to, to use it as a foundation for the plan of salvation, as assurance that what God has begun in you, he will complete when Christ returns. So the reason why we're told these things, which to us can seem like difficult mysteries, the reason why Paul shares these doctrines is actually to give us assurance. Ironically, these doctrines that tend to Uh, lead us into greater and greater speculation are revealed to us to lay those speculations at rest so that we might focus on other things with confidence. In Romans 8, as we've seen, the fear that motivates a lot of the questions Paul addresses is a fear that the hardship and the suffering that we endure will separate us somehow from Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the fear that Paul is addressing is a fear that there's a judgment, that there's a wrath that is coming that that we will be exposed to and have to face. And there's a fear in having to do that. In both of those cases, though, that fear, it seems irrational based on an intellectual knowledge of what Scripture actually teaches. Like these are not difficult fears to answer. And if if someone came to you and said, well, I'm worried that the things I suffer for Christ will separate me from the love of Christ, you could reassure them fairly easily that that doesn't make sense. 
That's not the way it works. If someone came to you consumed with anxiety that that I'm going to be punished, I will face wrath and judgment for the sins which Christ has forgiven, you could quickly reassure them that, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. Listen to what you're saying. Intellectually, these are not fears that are difficult to address, but they're not intellectual fears. Our fears don't come out of our understanding. Our fears come out of our hearts. And so we need reassurance that is more than intellectual. And that's the kind of reassurance that Paul is giving us when he talks about destiny. What you are destined for by God. Our fears reflect our heart concerns So oftentimes the the things we're afraid of, it's true that we know better. It's true that we know better. It's one of the things as a pastor you're always facing in, in talking to Christians who suffer or Christians who are struggling is that you're having a conversation where the person that you're talking to already knows the right answer to their question. And so when you say it, it seems as if it doesn't, have any power, right? Because you're not telling people something that they don't already know. But the problem isn't intellectual. The problem is a problem of the heart. We know better, but we continue to fear. And in response to that, Paul says, don't sweat these details. Don't have fear and anxiety over these things. Just focus on your destiny. Don't focus on how you get there, focus on where you are certain to arrive. Focus on the fact that salvation is God's work from start to finish and not yours. In sounding that note, Paul says something very similar to what John says in John's prologue to his gospel. So John chapter one, it was our final reading Lessons and Carols. It's that great passage that usually we go to to learn about Christ's incarnation. Like, what is the reason why the Son of God took on flesh to dwell among us? John's prologue answers that question, but it does more than that. It alludes to other things as well. And if you turn to John chapter 1 in verses 12 and 13, you read some interesting words. So in, in verse 11, John points out that Jesus, uh, he comes to his own, but his own do not receive him, right? So he comes as the promised Messiah for Israel, but then he is largely rejected by the the people of Israel, That reality is something that Paul has to deal with in Romans 9 when we pick that up. Like if Jesus has come as the Messiah who is promised to Israel, what do I do with the fact that most of have rejected him. But here's what John says. He he points that out. His own rejected him. But in verse 12, he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the apostle John, whose gospel is all about the new birth, the necessity of the new birth. You must be born again. When he talks about birth, reveals right up front the nature of this new birth that you're going to discover 
in the Gospel of John and says, this new birth is not the result of your ethnic identity. It's not the result of blood. Like You're not one of the children of God because you were born into the right family. But it's also not the result of human merit or will. It's not the will of the flesh. It's not the will of man. You're not the children of God because you've made it so. You're not God's children because of your good choices or because of your deserving it. Instead, he says, but of God. It's not all these other things. It is of God. This birth comes from God. When Jesus in John chapter 3 talks to Nicodemus and and says uh, those words explaining the necessity of the new birth, if you remember the passage, you know, this is where John 3.16 is found, for God so loved the world. But if you remember the way that Jesus introduces this, he introduces it by talking about the same person we've been talking about throughout Romans 8, the Holy Spirit. And he describes the Holy Spirit as like the wind. He says the wind comes and the wind goes. and You don't know where it's coming from or where it goes. It just kind of does its thing. And he talks about the, the kind of mystery, the unpredictability, the, the sovereignty, if you will, of that spiritual work by comparing it to an imperceivable force that you cannot control, cannot even sometimes perceive, except in its effects. So this idea of a mystery, this idea of salvation as a work of God alone is not Paul's idea alone, but all of the apostles emphasize this and emphasize to us the importance of seeing it so that we might be assured. Focus on your destiny. It's a powerful response to the ultimate product of our fears. That product is inwardness, inwardness. By saying you were not destined for wrath, the assurance is meant to guard against the tendency towards inwardness that so easily consumes us. That's what fear does. It turns us inside ourselves. Anxiety over whether or not I'm saved or or will remain saved. Obsession over my spiritual status. Am I good enough? That sort of thing leading me to a kind of morbid introspection. Idle speculation on the end times. When will Jesus return? What are the things that will happen? How do we interpret these signs going down uh, rabbit holes that, that have an almost Gnostic quality, like a search for a secret knowledge that the other Christians don't possess, that we alone understand. Right? These kinds of things turn us inward, obsessing over ourselves, over our own concerns. And this is behavior that from the outside may appear to be pious. It may look like a pious obsession with the things of God, but in fact, it's just another kind of self-centeredness. And Paul says, God has not destined us to wrath, but to salvation. The point is to free us from this focus on self, to enable us to forget self and focus on the mission to which we have been called, just as Christ did, just as Christ set aside self in order to focus on serving. So we are being assured 
that our destiny is not wrath, but salvation, are encouraged to set aside inwardness and focus on calling. Christ's life and death had a purpose. There was a work that he came into the world to perform, a mission that he came to accomplish. The purpose of his life and death is that we, whether dead or alive, might live. Paul expresses it, I think, very poetically. You look at the the words that he says. This is in verse 10 of our text. It's kind of beautiful the way that he puts it. He says, Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So at the beginning of the sentence, death, at the end of the sentence, life, and then in the middle, this awake or asleep, this living and dying is placed in the center. And there's some purpose behind that. There's a poetic balance to his expression that makes a powerful point. The point is this, that Christ has changed the stakes for God's people. Christ's life and death and resurrection has changed the stakes. It's changed the way we, we balance things. When there's a question of utmost importance, we call it a matter of life and death. It's really important. That's a matter of life and death. But Christ's life and death and resurrection puts my life and death in a different perspective. And suddenly what seems like an ultimate concern becomes a secondary concern. Whether waking or sleeping, he says, because of Christ's death, we have life. And you think, well, that waking or sleeping thing, Paul, that's really important to me. That's life or death to me. Paul is saying, it's actually not as important as you think. There's something larger. There's a larger reality to comprehend that is revealed in Christ's work. Whether I live or die, in Christ I have life everlasting. This is why in Philippians 1.21, Paul can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you go to Philippians 1 and you read that passage, you'll find some commentators, and, and, and maybe you'll feel this way as well. When you read that, you may think to yourself, Paul's been through a lot, and he's clearly suffering from depression because he's talking about how he'd just rather die. I'll keep going forward in ministry if I have to. I'll keep doing this, this if I have to, but I'd much rather die and be with Jesus. And you just think, man, this guy suffered. Because it's almost as if, in saying that, he's, he's showing like a contempt for life, for his God-given life. God gave you this life and you'd rather die? And you're like, Paul, snap out of it. But I say when we read Paul's words that way, we misread him terribly. What Paul is demonstrating in Philippians 1 is not his contempt for life. What he's demonstrating is his contempt for death. He's not saying, I think very little of life. He's saying, I think very little of death and what it can do to me. He's saying words you can only say when Christ's death has made life eternal yours. Christ's death puts certain things in perspective. It puts ambition in perspective. Have I accomplished enough? Will I be remembered? Do people admire me? 
The death of Christ puts concerns like that in their proper place. Comfort? Do I have enough? Will I be taken care of? Will my needs be met? Again, waking or sleeping. These things are relatively inconsequential. Love? Does anyone truly know me and accept me? Will I be alone? Will I be loved? Not ultimate questions compared to this larger reality. I say that not to discount or discredit the importance of any of those qualifications, only to say that the death and life of Christ and the life that we have as a result puts all of them in a new light so that we can bear what we must bear and endure what we must endure and give glory for what we enjoy, but live for Christ and not for these lesser things. When we know this, when we know this destiny that we have in Christ, when we know the life that we have in Christ, we can see that what we've been called to is not inwardness. It's not speculation. What we've been called to is endurance and even edification. Paul's basically saying God predestined you to salvation and Christ died so that you will live. So do this. Do this. And what is the this? Encourage one another and build one another up. That's the reason. That's the purpose. I'm giving you the assurance. I'm revealing to you the mysteries so that you can stop worrying and start encouraging one another and building one another up. In fact, in the case of the Thessalonians, they're already doing this. Just keep doing what you're doing because like a lot of people, they're doing the right thing, but they have doubts about whether what they're doing is actually the right thing. No amount of inwardness, no amount of speculation will bring them closer to their mission than they already are. What they've been called to do is not to fear, not to worry, but to encourage and to build one another up. We've been called to endurance. We've been called to endurance. Paul's Mentioning the armor of God should remind you of this. If you go back to Ephesians 6 and you read about the the whole armor of God, you know that the reason why all of this armor is provided is so that you can stand. Paul says so that you can stand. You can endure, in other words. Whatever is thrown at you, whatever damage is done, whatever attacks are launched, armed Equipped by the spirit, you can stand. But no battle was ever won by men in armor who hunkered down to merely endure. To simply take the damage for a little while, that's an admirable thing. If you endure bombardment all night, the next morning we can sing about how the flag was still there and it's a glorious thing. But if all you ever do is endure... How can there possibly be victory? So we're called to endure, but we're called to do more than endure. Sometimes the way that we talk about endurance, perseverance makes it sound like we think ultimately the battle will be lost. And the main thing is just to struggle till the very end. 
that, that, that the Christian life is sort of a, a, a suicide mission where it's really important that everyone get killed. Like, be faithful until the very last person dies in battle. That's not what Paul has in mind by endurance. He says, encourage one another and build one another up. Do more than endure. Do more than stand. Like, Paul's endurance isn't stoic resignation. It's joyful. It's constructive endurance. So he calls us to encourage one another. When I feel unloved, you remind me of Christ's love. When I am helpless and overwhelmed, you assure me of Christ's strength. When I'm surrounded by defeat, you call out, we are more than conquerors. And when it's you who's unloved and helpless and defeated, I do the same for you. To encourage one another, to call out to one another, to make sure that our strength is renewed, that we know that we're not alone, that we are enduring together. But not only to encourage one another, but also to build one another up. Edification, the process of building up. This is a way that Paul summarizes uh, how we equip one another for the path of discipleship. Like the world attacks, the world comes in that puts pressure, it tests you, it tears at you, When the world tears at us, let us do more than stand. Let us build. Let us grow. Let us continue to to extend ourselves so that we flourish in the midst of our crises rather than simply surviving. It's this, this point, interestingly, in this verse, the third person of the Trinity enters in. We've already talked about the Father in, in destining us and the Son in dying for us. And now in verse 11, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. But you might look at verse 11 and ask yourself, where exactly is the Holy Spirit mentioned? But you already know the answer from Romans 8. The Holy Spirit indwells us. When Paul says, encourage one another and build one another up, what he's describing to you is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And the Spirit who indwells us works through us to encourage us and to build us up. This is what the work of the Spirit looks like. Remember, the wind that blows this way and that way can only be perceived through its effects The Spirit works through you to encourage them and to build us up. That's what the Spirit does in the life of the church. So that in life and death and knowledge and in ignorance, we focus on the cross. We're guided by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Waking or sleeping, we have knowledge and life in Him. And that knowledge... That doctrine, that theology, those rich mysteries that are revealed to us are revealed to us for a reason. They're revealed in order to free us from ourselves, to free us from our fears and our anxieties so that we might love him and love one another. So that we might love God with all our hearts and minds and souls and selves, our very being, and love our neighbor as ourself. It's the purpose behind all of these mysteries.
Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.